when I published my book, I only put my American name on it. But I found that in publishing that book, I definitely interacted with a lot of Vietnamese people who were asking me, "What's your Vietnamese name? What's your Vietnamese name?" And so, in subsequent versions of the book, I, I put that name on as well. In my evolution as, as a person and my own identity, I think at some point, you know, I was very uncomfortable with my Vietnamese name, and I think、um, over the past, you know, few years and time, I'm comfortable that they're both my name. You're listening to the podcast stories of the Vietnamese boat people. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Real quick before we start the show, don't forget to mark your calendar for the second annual Mayvik Story Slam coming up on May six. It's going to be an online event showcasing a curated set of storytellers that you won't want to miss. Visit our website at vietnameseboatpeople.org/storyslam. About a year ago, I met Mark Erickson, author of the photo book *Other Streets: Scenes from a Life in Vietnam Not Lived*. Mark's book was published in 2019, and it contains a selection of photos he took in 1993. This was before the internet boom and before digital cameras became mainstream. With his manual 35 millimeter film camera, Mark took photos of ordinary people doing ordinary things in ordinary places in Vietnam. But to him, they were anything but ordinary. They gave him a glimpse into a life he never lived. In America, you grow up with this idea that as a as a youth and as a kid, like you don't work, you're a student, and in old age you retire and you don't work. But I observed in Vietnam and the people that I met and the people I interacted with, like children worked, adults worked, old people worked. Everyone was engaged in in some sort of work. So there wasn't this idea of like childhood. So those like really, really basic fundamental things. Obviously, you can't read in a book or see in a movie, but when you experience it yourself, that's that's eye-opening to understand this is how people live their lives. Mark was born in Saigon in 1972. He was put up for adoption at two and a half years old, and in 1975 he was evacuated as part of Operation Babylift. There were rules. In the South Vietnamese government at the time, where really only I think what they designated were true orphans could be adopted, but because my birth mother was alive, I technically was not an orphan. So she had to sign specific paperwork that legally allowed me to be adopted. In the final days before the collapse of South Vietnam, the U.S. government began evacuating Vietnamese children. Mostly orphans to countries like America, Canada, Australia, and parts of Europe. This also included many Amerasians, those fathered by American soldiers. These children were often ostracized under the communist regime. This was called Operation Babylift, and it was controversial because not all the children were orphans. There are stories of parents voluntarily giving up their babies on site. Begging for a spot on the plane, believing that their child would have a better life anywhere else but Vietnam. 
when I have read about the history of South Vietnam, what was going on in 1974, 1975, a lot of the adoptions going on in the multiple adoption agencies and South Vietnam, the government agencies in the United States, it was quite chaotic, very, very disorganized. The first Operation Baby Lift flight took off on April 4th, 1975, but it crashed soon after due to a flight malfunction. 138 people were killed in that crash, including 78 were children. It is estimated that over 3,300 infants and children were successfully evacuated as part of the operation, although the actual numbers reported have varied. There is no official list of passengers, and many babies left with no documents to identify who they are, not even their names. For Mark, he was adopted by a white couple in Buffalo, New York. He is the youngest of three adopted children, and his other two siblings are also white. There was a, a large woods in our backyard and a creek. I loved that. We lived in a typical American suburban neighborhood where there were sidewalks and lots of kids and you could ride your bikes around and you know play with other kids. I don't think I really had a racial lens when I was growing up, but I definitely can see, you know, looking back, you know, I, I had almost all of my friends were white. You know, I would have, you know, in, in my close circle, that was definitely true. Um, it's not like I was unfriendly to the other Asians who were in my school, but, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily that close to them either. Being of a different race, it's obvious to everyone around you and to yourself. And, you know, when I look back, whether it's family albums or yearbooks, um, you know, I clearly stood out as someone of, of a different race. Again, I don't think I was very self-reflective about that until high school and later when I did start thinking about, you know, where did I come from? How did I get here? You know, asking, asking those sorts of questions. Mark grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. And what he knew about Vietnam was based on blockbuster war movies and American history books. I found when I watched movies or read books by Americans about the Vietnam War, obviously the Americans were the central characters in those stories. And Vietnam and the Vietnamese people were kind of background players. Until he left for college to attend Harvard University, and right outside of Harvard, in Boston, is a neighborhood called Dorchester, where Mark discovered a large Vietnamese community that welcomed him. When I got to college, that really opened up a lot more to me. I made Vietnamese friends. I got to meet other Vietnamese people my age, hear about you know, their experiences, become friends with them. And it was through them that they encouraged me to teach English as a second language to give back to the community, which again, I, I wouldn't have done on my own because I, in myself, I didn't feel like I was part of the Vietnamese community. But going to Dorchester, which is the largest kind of enclave of Vietnamese you know, refugees in Boston and meeting people and hearing about their experiences and helping them settle and acculturate in the United States and help them either not only learn English, but apply to colleges or help and get jobs, those types of things. You know, one was very educational for me, but it was also very re rewarding to me in terms of seeing more of 
different Vietnamese experiences, given that my growing up background, I didn't have any exposure to that. So tell me a little bit about um, what you discovered during that time. I had complicated feelings. You know, there was a little bit of feeling like, you know, a fish out of water, like I, I don't belong here. But it was also really, really warm and welcoming because I was in a group of people who definitely welcomed me to be a part of their community. And, and that was something, you know, that I had never experienced seeing multi-generational families living together with grandparents and parents and children and, you know, really meeting them and getting to know them and seeing and observing as well as having them welcome, you know, me to be, you know, a part of their lives and their community. That was a really wonderful experience for me. In 1993, Mark went to Vietnam for the first time through a student program. He realized his perception of Vietnam had been through distorted American lens. I spent a lot of my free time by myself, wandering around the streets, riding my bicycle around, meeting people, taking photographs, and when, when you have a camera in your hand, it's, it gives you permission to stare at people, gives you permission to approach people and interact with them in a way that sometimes you might not feel comfortable, you know, when you don't have a, a camera in your hand. So it was definitely for me a gateway or a means to, you know, explore neighborhoods, streets, places off the beaten path that I might not have otherwise. Vietnam in 1993, it was not at its nadir in terms of the, the post-war economy, but it definitely was before all of the more recent economic development. When I went to Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, there were no high-rises. The tallest buildings were still the ones that were built by the Americans in the 1960s. So not like the Saigon that you see today with high-rises everywhere. And the roads were still primarily dirt roads everywhere, even in the cities, because I had lived in the United States my whole life. And I'd only visited other you know, wealthy countries in terms of my travels. That was definitely eye-opening as an American. So at that time, were you starting to explore or inquire about your birth family at all? I had gotten to a place within myself where I felt like I was never going to know my birth family and that I was at peace with that. And so when I was in Vietnam, I didn't make any effort whatsoever to make contact with them or, you know, to find them. You know, most of my time I spent in Hawaii and I knew family would be in Saigon. When I did go to Saigon um, and we were there for a week, that was the time that I thought about, you know, wow, I was born here. I used to live here. And that definitely brought up emotions that you know, I wasn't expecting. Mark had taken hundreds of photos during his six months in Vietnam. He had only developed it with a few contact sheets. And when he got back from his trip, he stashed them away and life went on. I think oftentimes in romantic endeavors, opposites attract. And that was definitely true in the case of, you know, Julia and me. Mark married his Harvard sweetheart, Julia a black woman from St. Louis, Missouri. You know, I'm the quieter one and she's the more exuberant one. And she's an amazing woman. She's the type of person that bumps into someone in the, the Starbucks line and 10 minutes later, that person has like told them her, their whole life story because she just has that type of personality, which uh, is very, very warm and trusting and people open up to her. Then one day, Mark got an unexpected call. 
out of the blue, I got a call from a couple who, who were actually from Brooklyn. They were working in Ho Chi Minh City for an American company, and their housekeeper was my half-sister. And my half-sister told them a story. I had this brother who went to America at the end of the war and was adopted by an American family. And they were so moved by that story, they took it upon themselves of, we have to go find your brother. My birth mother had kept my adoption papers, which relinquished me to the Ericsons, which actually had my parents' names and their address in Buffalo. For the first few years, we definitely wrote a lot of letters back and forth in exchange photographs. And I let them know about you know, my life here, and they let me know about you know, their life there. But after a while, we kind of ran out of things to say. Other than our blood tie, there really wasn't much connecting us. And I also had a lot of mixed up feelings about uh, my birth family that came to the surface after they reached out to me. And given a language and cultural barrier, it was also like, I felt like I couldn't really express those things to them. You know, it, it took some therapy and, you know, definitely a certain amount of work to, you know, make sense of those feelings. What I would later find out to be were some pretty common adoption, particularly international adoption related issues in terms of feeling abandoned by my birth family, having a very emotional reaction to the idea that my birth mother kept some of her children, but sent me away and not initially really understanding, like, how could you possibly do that? I think it took several years for me to like make sense of that and, and, and come to peace with that. I know a lot more now than I did, you know, growing up. So I've learned more about, you know, the story. My birth mother, she was born in Haiphong. She and her brother were orphaned. My birth mother married another northerner who had come south, who was from Hanoi. And they had three girls and one boy. In the 1960s, after the youngest was born, when he was about a year old, the father died of an illness. So my birth mother was a widow with four young children and definitely was impoverished and had a hard time feeding the family and keeping the family together. So the oldest sister essentially went to go live with the aunt and I think was more of like a domestic servant there, although, you know, she was still, a, you know, a child. And, you know, at some point, my birth mother had a relationship with uh, a man. They were not married, but he was able to help support her as well. I came out of that relationship. And then my birth father, at some point, I'm going to call it 1974-ish, he disappears. And as you know, in Vietnam at that time, a lot of people disappeared for all sorts of reasons, but they didn't know what happened to him. My birth mother was again in a situation where, you know, she was having a hard time, you know, supporting herself and her children. So the different children went to different places. My closest sister stayed with my mom. My brother was sent to what sounds like, you know, more of like a Buddhist orphanage. And then I was sent to be adopted in the United States. And how old were you? So I was two and a half at that time. Is it your adoption papers that you have or your birth certificate? I don't have a birth certificate, but I do have adoption papers, which mm -hmm. have my 
legal Vietnamese name and birth date and, you know, mother's name and her permission for me to be adopted. I've noticed that in your work, you've been signing it with your Vietnamese name. Yes, the name that I was given at birth, which I'm always self-conscious that I don't say it correctly, is Do Van Home. And I've always known that name from my adoption records. And I don't think I ever used it until I met other Vietnamese people. When I published my book, I only put my American name on it, but I found that in publishing that book, I definitely interacted with a lot of Vietnamese people who were asking me, what's your Vietnamese name? What's your Vietnamese name? And so in subsequent versions of the book, I, I put that name on as well. In my evolution as, as a person and my own identity, I think at some point, you know, I was very uncomfortable with my Vietnamese name. And I think um, over the past, you know, few years and time, I'm comfortable that they're both my names. It's not one or the other. Why did you decide to go back and publish something, you know, almost a decade later, was it? Or two decades later. I think there's this natural pause at midlife in the 40s when you start thinking about all of those things again. And for me, it was, you know, that time in my life my kids were getting older. So at that time, my kids were teenagers and they were in high school. So not surprisingly, they were, they were exploring those things too and asking me questions about my background and my identity. And you know that brings all sorts of questions to the fore, including ones that I hadn't fully answered for myself. Mark and Julia have seven children and he wants his children to feel more comfortable with their identity than he did growing up. While he had come to terms with his past, even with questions left unanswered, his search to connect with his Vietnamese identity became even more important as a father with biracial children. Mark understands they also have to navigate their own journeys of race. I've talked to my daughters about that through their college experiences, and one of my daughters has joined the Vietnamese Students Association at Columbia. but where they make sense of that and what groups do they want to be a part of and where they feel comfortable, that's their own journey as well. And I just, as a, as a father, you know, I just want to be a sounding board and talk through those things, but totally respect whatever decisions and experiences that they choose to have for themselves. Mark's next photo book project is called Dorchester and will include photos of the Vietnamese community in Boston that welcomed him during his time in undergrad. While the other streets was mainly street photography and people he met wandering around Vietnam, Dorchester will be very different. The photographs are centered around families that he knew at their kitchen tables, living rooms, in dim lighting, which shows a different journey, a different life lived. Going to Dorchester was just as important to me as, as a person. For whatever reason, I felt like at that time I was really, I was creating it for myself, not for an audience. But I think now, kind of where I am in my life, I see that there's value in sharing this work with other people. This is a part of America. This is a part of life that no one sees, but it's definitely a part of the American story. After hearing Mark's story, I have a new appreciation for his photography and his search to connect with his Vietnamese heritage through the lens of a camera. You can find Other Streets on Amazon or Mark's website. 
To connect with Mark and explore his work, follow our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 27. And a quick shout out to Trisha Vung and Jackie Reed for editing support on this episode. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.